Master Humphrey's Clock, Section 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Master Humphrey's Clock by Charles Dickens. Chapter 1. Part 1. Master Humphrey from his clock-side in the chimney-corner. The reader must not expect to know where I live. At present, it is true, my abode may be a question of little or no import to anybody. But if I should carry my readers with me, as I hope to do, and there should spring up between them and me feelings of homely affection and regard attaching something of interest to matters ever so slightly connected with my fortunes or my speculations, even my place of residence might one day have a kind of charm for them. Bearing this possible contingency in mind, I wish them to understand, in the outset, that they must never expect to know it. I am not a churlish old man. Friendless I can never be, for all mankind are my kindred, and I am on ill terms with no one member of my great family. But for many years I have led a lonely, solitary life. What wound I sought to heal, what sorrow to forget originally, matters not now. It is sufficient that retirement has become a habit with me, and that I am unwilling to break the spell which for so long a time has shed its quiet influence upon my home and heart. I live in a venerable suburb of London, in an old house which in bygone days was a famous resort for merry roisterers and peerless ladies long since departed. It is a silent, shady place with a paved courtyard so full of echoes that sometimes I am tempted to believe that faint responses to the noises of old times linger there yet, and that these ghosts of sound haunt my footsteps as I pace it up and down. I am the most confirmed in this belief because of late years the echoes that attend my walks have been less loud and marked than they were wont to be, and it is pleasanter to imagine in them the rustling of a silk brocade and the light step of some lovely girl than to recognize in their altered note the failing tread of an old man. Those who like to read of brilliant rooms and gorgeous furniture would derive but little pleasure from a minute description of my simple dwelling. It is dear to me for the same reason that they would hold it in slight regard. Its worm-eaten doors and low ceilings crossed by clumsy beams, its walls of wainscot, dark stairs, and gaping closets, its small chambers communicating with each other by winding passages or narrow steps, its many nooks scarce larger than its corner cupboards, its very dust and dullness are all dear to me. The moth and spider are my constant tenants, for in my house the one basks in his long sleep, and the other plies his busy loom secure and undisturbed. I have a pleasure in thinking on a summer's day how many butterflies have sprung for the first time into light and sunshine from some dark corner of these old walls. When I first came to live here, which was many years ago, the neighbours were curious to know who I was, and whence I came, and why I lived so much alone. As time went on, and they still remained unsatisfied on these points, I became the centre of a popular ferment, extending for half a mile round, and in one direction for a full mile. Various rumours were circulated to my prejudice. I was a spy an infidel a conjurer a kidnapper of children a refugee a priest a monster mothers caught up their infants and ran into their houses as i passed men eyed me spitefully and muttered threats and curses i was the object of suspicion and distrust i of downright hatred too 
but when in course of time they found I did no harm, but on the contrary inclined towards them despite their unjust usage, they began to relent. I found my footsteps no longer dogged as they had often been before, and observed that the women and children no longer retreated, but would stand and gaze at me as I passed their doors. I took this for a good omen, and waited patiently for better times. By degrees I began to make friends among these humble folks, and though they were yet shy of speaking, would give them good day, and so pass on. In little time those whom I had thus accosted would make a point of coming to their doors and windows at the usual hour, and nod or courtesy to me. Children, too, came timidly within my reach, and ran away quite scared when I patted their heads and bade them be good at school. These little people soon grew more familiar. From exchanging mere words, of course, with my older neighbours, I gradually became their friend and adviser, the depository of their cares and sorrows, and sometimes, it may be, the reliever, in my small way, of their distresses. And now I never walk abroad, but pleasant recognitions and smiling faces wait on Master Humphrey." It was a whim of mine, perhaps as a whet to the curiosity of my neighbours, and a kind of retaliation upon them for their suspicions. It was, I say, a whim of mine, when I first took up my abode in this place, to acknowledge no other name than Humphrey. With my detractors I was Ugly Humphrey. When I began to convert them into friends I was Mr. Humphrey and Old Mr. Humphrey. At length I settled down into plain Master Humphrey which was understood to be the title most pleasant to my ear, and so completely a matter of course has it become, that sometimes when I am taking my morning walk in my little courtyard, I overhear my barber, who has a profound respect for me, and would not, I am sure, abridge my honours for the world, holding forth on the other side of the wall, touching the state of Master Humphrey's health, and communicating to some friend the substance of the conversation that he and Master Humphrey have had together in the course of the shaving which he has just concluded. That I may not make acquaintance with my readers under false pretenses, or give them cause to complain hereafter that I have withheld any matter which it was essential for them to have learnt at first, I wish them to know, and I smile sorrowfully to think that the time has been when the confession would have given me pain, that I am a misshapen, deformed old man. I have never been made a misanthrope by this cause. I have never been stung by any insult, nor wounded by any jest upon my crooked figure. As a child I was melancholy and timid, but that was because the gentle consideration paid to my misfortune sunk deep into my spirit and made me sad even in those early days. I was but a very young creature when my poor mother died, and yet I remember that often when I hung around her neck, and oftener still when I played about the room before her, she would catch me to her bosom, and, bursting into tears, would soothe me with every term of fondness and affection. God knows I was a happy child at those times, happy to nestle in her breast, happy to weep when she did, happy in not knowing why. These occasions are so strongly impressed upon my memory that they seem to have occupied whole years. I had numbered very, very few when they ceased for ever, but before then their meaning had been revealed to me. I do not know whether all children are imbued with a quick perception of childish grace and beauty, and a strong love for it, but I was. 
I had no thought that I remember, either that I possessed it myself or that I lacked it, but I admired it with an intensity that I cannot describe. A little knot of playmates, they must have been beautiful, for I see them now, were clustered one day round my mother's knee in eager admiration of some picture representing a group of infant angels which she held in her hand. Whose the picture was, whether it was familiar to me or otherwise, or how all the children came to be there, I forget. I have some dim thought it was my birthday, but the beginning of my recollection is that we were all together in a garden, and it was summer weather. I am sure of that, for one of the little girls had roses in her sash. There were many lovely angels in this picture, and I remember the fancy coming upon me to point out which of them represented each child there, and that when I had gone through my companions I stopped and hesitated, wondering which was most like me. I remember the children looking at each other, and my turning red and hot, and their crowding round to kiss me, saying that they loved me all the same, and then when the old sorrow came into my dear mother's mild and tender look, the truth broke upon me for the first time, and I knew while watching my awkward and ungainly sports how keenly she had felt for her poor crippled boy. I used frequently to dream of it afterwards, and now my heart aches for that child as if I had never been he, when I think how often he awoke from some fairy change to his own old form and sobbed himself to sleep again. Well, well, all these sorrows are past. My glancing at them may not be without its use, for it may help in some measure to explain why I have all my life been attached to the inanimate objects that people my chamber and how I have come to look upon them rather in the light of old and constant friends than as mere chairs and tables which a little money could replace at will. Chief and first among all these is my clock, my old, cheerful, companionable clock. How can I ever convey to others an idea of the comfort and consolation that this old clock has been for years to me? It is associated with my earliest recollections. It stood upon the staircase at home. I call it home still mechanically, nigh sixty years ago. I like it for that, but it is not on that account, nor because it is a quaint old thing in a huge oaken case curiously and richly carved, that I prize it as I do. I incline to it as if it were alive, and could understand and give me back the love I bear it. And what other thing that has not life could cheer me as it does? What other thing that has not life, I will not say how few things that have, could have proved the same patient, true, untiring friend? How often have I sat in the long winter evenings, feeling such society in its cricket voice, that raising my eyes from my book and looking gratefully towards it, the face reddened by the glow of the shining fire has seemed to relax from its staid expression and to regard me kindly. How often in the summer twilight, when my thoughts have wandered back to a melancholy past, have its regular whisperings recalled them to the calm and peaceful present! How often in the dead tranquillity of night has its bell broken the oppressive silence, and seemed to give me assurance that the old clock was still a faithful watcher at my chamber door! My easy-chair, my desk, my ancient furniture, my very books, I can scarcely bring myself to love even these last like my old clock. It stands in a snug corner, 
midway between the fireside and a low arched door leading to my bedroom. Its fame is diffused so extensively throughout the neighbourhood that I have often the satisfaction of hearing the publican or the baker, and sometimes even the parish clerk, petitioning my housekeeper, of whom I shall have much to say by and by, to inform him the exact time by Master Humphrey's clock. My barber, to whom I have referred, would sooner believe it than the sun, nor are these its only distinctions. It has acquired, I am happy to say, another, inseparably connected it not only with my enjoyments and my reflections, but with those of other men, as I shall now relate. I lived alone here for a long time without any friend or acquaintance. In the course of my wanderings by night and day, at all hours and seasons, in city streets and quiet country parts, I came to be familiar with certain faces, and to take it to heart as quite a heavy disappointment if they failed to present themselves each at its accustomed spot. But these were the only friends I knew, and beyond them I had none. It happened, however, when I had gone on thus for a long time, that I formed an acquaintance with a deaf gentleman which ripened into intimacy and close companionship. To this hour I am ignorant of his name. It is his humour to conceal it, or he has a reason and purpose for so doing. In either case I feel that he has a right to require a return of the trust he has reposed, and as he has never sought to discover my secret, I have never sought to penetrate his. There may have been something in this tacit confidence in each other flattering and pleasant to us both, and it may have imparted in the beginning an additional zest, perhaps, to our friendship. Be this as it may, we have grown to be like brothers, and still I only know him as the deaf gentleman. I have said that retirement has become a habit with me. When I add that the deaf gentleman and I have two friends, I communicate nothing which is inconsistent with that declaration. I spend many hours of every day in solitude and study, have no friends or change of friends but these, only see them at stated periods, and am supposed to be of a retired spirit by the very nature and object of our association. We are men of secluded habits, with something of a cloud upon our early fortunes, whose enthusiasm nevertheless has not cooled with age, whose spirit of romance is not yet quenched, who are content to ramble through the world in a pleasant dream, rather than ever waken again to its harsh realities. We are alchemists who would extract the essence of perpetual youth from dust and ashes, tempt coy truth in many light and airy forms from the bottom of her well, and discover one crumb of comfort or one grain of good in the commonest and least regarded matter that passes through our crucible. Spirits of past times, creatures of imagination, and people of to-day are alike the objects of our seeking, and unlike the objects of search with most philosophers, we can ensure their coming at our command. The deaf gentleman and I first began to beguile our days with these fancies, and our nights in communicating them to each other. We are now four, but in my room there are six old chairs, and we have decided that the two empty seats shall always be placed at our table when we meet, to remind us that we may yet increase our company by that number, if we should find two men to our mind. When one among us dies, his cheer will always be set in its usual place, but never occupied again. And I have caused my will to be so drawn out, that when we are all dead, 
the house shall be shut up, and the vacant chairs still left in their accustomed places. It is pleasant to think that even then our shades may perhaps assemble together as of yore we did, and join in ghostly converse. One night in every week, as the clock strikes ten, we meet. At the second stroke of two, I am alone. And now I shall tell how that my old servant, besides giving us note of time and ticking cheerful encouragement of our proceedings, lends its name to our society, which, for its punctuality and my love, is christened Master Humphrey's Clock. Now shall I tell how that in the bottom of the old dark closet, where the steady pendulum throbs and beats with healthy action, though the pulse of him who made it stood still long ago and never moved again, there are piles of dusty papers constantly placed there by our hands, that we may link our enjoyments with my old friend, and draw means to beguile time from the heart of time itself. Shall I, or can I, tell with what a secret pride I open this repository when we meet at night, and still find new store of pleasure in my dear old clock? Friend and companion of my solitude, mine is not a selfish love. I would not keep your merits to myself, but disperse something of a pleasant association with your image through the whole wide world. I would have men couple with your name cheerful and healthy thoughts. I would have them believe that you keep true and honest time, and how it would gladden me to know that they recognize some hearty English work in Master Humphrey's clock. THE CLOCK CASE It is my intention constantly to address my readers from the chimney-corner, and I would fain hope that such accounts as I shall give them of our histories and proceedings, our quiet speculations, or more busy adventures, will never be unwelcome. Lest, however, I should grow prolix in the outset by lingering too long upon our little association, confounding the enthusiasm with which I regard this chief happiness of my life with that minor degree of interest which those to whom I address myself may be supposed to feel for it, I have deemed it expedient to break off, as they have seen. But, still clinging to my old friend, and naturally desirous that all its merits should be known, I am tempted to open, somewhat irregularly and against our laws, I must omit, the clock-case. The first roll of paper on which I lay my hand is in the writing of the deaf gentleman. I shall have to speak of him in my next paper, and how can I better approach that welcome task than by prefacing it with a production of his own pen, consigned to the safe-keeping of my honest clock by his own hand? The manuscript runs thus. INTRODUCTION TO THE GIANT CHRONICLES Once upon a time, that is to say, in this our time, the exact month and day are of no matter, there dwelt in the city of London a substantial citizen, who united in his single person the dignities of wholesale fruiterer, alderman, common councilman, and member of the worshipful company of patent-makers, who had superadded to these extraordinary distinctions the important post and title of sheriff, and who at length, and to crown all, stood next in rotation for the high and honourable office of Lord Mayor. He was a very substantial citizen indeed. 
His face was like the full moon in a fog, with two little holes punched out for his eyes, a very ripe pear stuck on for his nose, and a wide gash to serve for a mouth. The girth of his waistcoat was hung up and lettered in his tailor's shop as an extraordinary curiosity. He breathed like a heavy snorer, and his voice in speaking came thickly forth, as if it were oppressed and stifled by feather beds. He trod the ground like an elephant, and eat and drink like—like nothing but an alderman, as he was. This worthy citizen had risen to his great eminence from small beginnings. He had been once a very lean, weazen little boy, never dreaming of carrying such a weight of flesh upon his bones or of money in his pockets, and glad enough to take his dinner at a baker's door and his tea at a pump. But he had long ago forgotten all this, as it was proper that a wholesale fruiterer, alderman, common councilman, member of the worshipful company of patent-makers, past sheriff, and, above all, a lord mayor that was to be, should. And he never forgot it more completely in all his life than on the 8th of November in the year of his election to the great golden civic chair, which was the day before his grand dinner at Guildhall. It happened that as he sat that evening all alone in his counting-house, looking over the bill of fare for next day, and checking off the fat capons in fifties, and the turtle soup by the hundred quarts for his private amusement, it happened that as he sat alone occupied in these pleasant calculations, a strange man came in and asked him how he did, adding, "'If I am half as much changed as you, sir, you have no recollection of me, I am sure.' The strange man was not over and above well-dressed, and was very far from being fat or rich-looking in any sense of the word, yet he spoke with a kind of modest confidence, and assumed an easy, gentlemanly sort of an air, to which nobody but a rich man can lawfully presume. Besides this, he interrupted the good citizen just as he had reckoned three hundred and seventy-two fat capons, and was carrying them over to the next column, as if that were not aggravation enough, the learned recorder for the City of London had only ten minutes previously gone out at that very same door, and had turned round and said, "'Good night, my lord.' Yes, he had said, "'My lord.' he a man of birth and education of the honourable society of the middle temple barrister at law he who had an uncle in the house of commons and an aunt almost but not quite in the house of lords for she had married a feeble peer and made him vote as she liked he this man this learned recorder had said my lord i'll not wait till to-morrow to give you your title my lord mayor says he with a bow and a smile you are Lord Mayor de facto, if not de jure. Good night, my lord. The Lord Mayor-elect thought of this, and, turning to the stranger and sternly bidding him go out of his private counting-house, brought forward the three hundred and seventy-two fat capons, and went on with his account. Do you remember, said the other, stepping forward, do you remember little Joe Toddyhigh? The port wine fled for a moment from the fruiterer's nose as he muttered, "'Joe Toddyhigh, what about Joe Toddyhigh?' "'I am Joe Toddyhigh,' cried the visitor. "'Look at me, look hard at me, harder, harder. You know me now? You know little Joe again? What a happiness to us both to meet the very night before your grandeur. Oh, give me your hand, Jack, both hands, both, for the sake of old times.' "'You pinch me, sir. You're a-hurting of me,' said the Lord Mayor-elect pettishly. "'Don't suppose anybody should come. Mr. Toddyhigh, sir.' "'Mr. Toddyhigh,' repeated the other ruefully. 
"'Oh, don't bother,' said the mayor-elect, scratching his head. "'Dear me, why, I thought you was dead. What a fellow you are!' Indeed, it was a pretty state of things, and worthy the tone of vexation and disappointment in which the Lord Mayor spoke. Joe Toddyhigh had been a poor boy with him at Hull, and had oftentimes divided his last penny and parted his last crust to relieve his wants, for though Joe was a destitute child in those times, he was as faithful and affectionate in his friendship as ever man of might could be. They parted one day to seek their fortunes in different directions. Joe went to sea, and the now wealthy citizen begged his way to London. They separated with many tears, like foolish fellows as they were, and agreed to remain fast friends, and, if they lived, soon to communicate again. When he was an errand-boy, and even in the early days of his apprenticeship, the citizen had many a time trudged to the post-office to ask if there were any letter from poor little Joe, and had gone home again with tears in his eyes, and when he found no news of his only friend. The world is a wide place, and it was a long time before the letter came. When it did, the writer was forgotten. It turned from white to yellow, from lying in the post-office with nobody to claim it, and in course of time was torn up with five hundred others and sold for waste-paper. And now at last, when it might least have been expected, here was this Joe Toddyhigh turning up and claiming acquaintance with a great public character, who on the morrow would be cracking jokes with the Prime Minister of England, and who had only at any time during the next twelve months to say the word, and he could shut up Temple Bar and make it no thoroughfare for the King himself. "'I am sure I don't know what to say, Mr. Toddyhigh,' said the Lord Mayor-elect. "'I really don't. It's very inconvenient.' i'd sooner have given twenty pound it's very inconvenient really a thought had come into his mind that perhaps his old friend might say something passionate which would give him an excuse for being angry himself no such thing joe looked at him steadily but very mildly and did not open his lips of course i shall pay you what i owe you said the lord mayor-elect fidgeting in his chair you lent me I think it was a shilling, or some small coin, when we parted company, and that, of course, I shall pay with good interest. I can pay my way with any man, and always have done. If you look into the mansion-house the day after to-morrow, some time after dusk, and ask for my private clerk, you'll find he has a draft for you. I haven't got time to say anything more just now, unless—' He hesitated, for, coupled with a strong desire to glitter for once in all his glory in the eyes of his former companion, was a distrust of his appearance, which might be more shabby than he could tell by that feeble light. "'Unless you'd like to come to the dinner to-morrow. I don't mind your having this ticket, if you'd like to take it. A great many people would give their ears for it, I can tell you.' His old friend took the card without speaking a word, and instantly departed. His sunburnt face and grey hair were present to the citizen's mind for a moment, but by the time he reached three hundred and eighty-one fat capons he had quite forgotten him. Joe Toddyhigh had never been in the capital of York before, and he wandered up and down the streets that night amazed at the number of churches and other public buildings, the splendour of the shops, the riches that were heaped up on every side, the glare of light in which they were displayed, and the concourse of people who hurried to and fro, indifferent apparently to all the wonders that surrounded them. But in all the long streets and broad squares 
there were none but strangers. It was quite a relief to turn down a byway and hear his own footsteps on the pavement. He went home to his inn, thought that London was a dreary, desolate place, and felt disposed to doubt the existence of one true-hearted man in the whole worshipful company of patent-makers. Finally he went to bed, and dreamed that he and the Lord Mayor-elect were boys again. He went next day to the dinner, and when, in a burst of light and music, and in the midst of splendid decorations and surrounded by brilliant company, his former friend appeared at the head of the hall, and was hailed with shouts and cheering. He cheered and shouted with the best, and for the moment could have cried. The next moment he cursed his weakness in behalf of a man so changed and selfish, and quite hated a jolly-looking old gentleman opposite for declaring himself in the pride of his heart a pattern-maker. As the banquet proceeded, he took more and more to heart the rich citizen's unkindness, and that not from any envy, but because he felt that a man of his state and fortune could all the better afford to recognize an old friend, even if he were poor and obscure. The more he thought of this, the more lonely and sad he felt. When the company dispersed and adjourned to the ballroom, he paced the hall and passages alone, ruminating in a very melancholy condition upon the disappointment he had experienced. It chanced, while he was lounging about in this moody state, that he stumbled upon a flight of stairs, dark, steep, and narrow, which he ascended without any thought about the matter, and so came into a little music-gallery, empty and deserted. From this elevated post, which commanded the whole hall, he amused himself in looking down upon the attendants who were clearing away the fragments of the feast very lazily, and drinking out of all the bottles and glasses with most commendable perseverance. His attention gradually relaxed, and he fell fast asleep. When he awoke, he thought that there must be something the matter with his eyes but rubbing them a little he soon found that the moonlight was really streaming through the east window that the lamps were all extinguished and that he was alone he listened but no distant murmur in the echoing passages not even the shutting of a door broke the deep silence he groped his way down the stairs and found that the door at the bottom was locked on the other side he began now to comprehend that he must have slept a long time that he had been overlooked and was shut up there for the night his first sensation, perhaps, was not altogether a comfortable one, for it was a dark, chilly, earthy-smelling place, and something too large for a man so situated to feel at home in. However, when the momentary consternation of his surprise was over, he made light of the accident, and resolved to feel his way up the stairs again, and make himself as comfortable as he could in the gallery until morning. As he turned to execute this purpose, he heard the clocks strike three. Any such invasion of a dead stillness as the striking of distant clocks causes it to appear the more intense and insupportable when the sound had ceased. He listened with strained attention in the hope that some clock, lagging behind its fellows, had yet to strike, looking all the time into the profound darkness before him, until it seemed to weave itself into a black tissue, patterned with a hundred reflections of his own eyes but the bells had all pealed out their warning for that once, and the gust of wind that moaned through the place seemed cold and heavy with their iron breath. The time and circumstances were favourable to reflection. 
He tried to keep his thoughts to the current, unpleasant though it was, in which they had moved all day, and to think with what a romantic feeling he had looked forward to shaking his old friend by the hand before he died, and what a wide and cruel difference there was between the meeting they had had, and that which he had so often and so long anticipated. Still he was disordered by waking to such sudden loneliness, and could not prevent his mind from running upon odd tales of people of undoubted courage, who, being shut up by night in vaults or churches, or other dismal places, had scaled great heights to get out, and fled from silence as they had never done from danger. This brought to his mind the moonlight through the window, and bethinking himself of it, he groped his way back up the crooked stairs but very stealthily, as though he were fearful of being overheard. He was very much astonished when he approached the gallery again, to see a light in the building, still more so on advancing hastily and looking round, to observe no visible source from which it could proceed. But how much greater yet was his astonishment at the spectacle which this light revealed! The statues of the two giants, Gog and Magog, each above fourteen feet in height, those which succeeded to still older and more barbarous figures after the great fire of London, and which stand in the Guildhall to this day, were endowed with life and motion. These guardian genii of the city had quitted their pedestals, and reclined in easy attitudes in the great stained-glass window. Between them was an ancient cask, which seemed to be full of wine, for the younger giant, clapping his huge hands upon it, and throwing up his mighty leg, burst into an exulting laugh, which reverberated through the hall like thunder. Joe Toddyhall instinctively stooped down, and more dead than alive felt his hair stand on end, his knees knock together, and a cold damp break out upon his forehead. But even at that minute curiosity prevailed over every other feeling, and somewhat reassured by the good humour of the giants and their apparent unconsciousness of his presence, he crouched in a corner of the gallery, in as small a space as he could, and peeping between the rails, observed them closely. It was then that the elder giant, who had a flowing grey beard, raised his thoughtful eyes to his companion's face, and in a grave and solemn voice addressed him thus. End of section one.